0: All right, welcome back. Today we are going to look at angels. Great, great topic. Um, so, what are what are angels? That's the place to begin. Uh, and you know, in our popular imagination, we kind of waft between uh, the calendar Hallmark version of the angel, as the uh, tiny little cherub, all right, the diapered little baby with a uh, harp or maybe a bow and arrow. And that's the cutesy image of angels, comforting. Uh, And the other one is the Hollywood version of the angel, which now is a kind of a very dark figure, tyrannical in its aspect, and always in a state of misgivings and doubt about what God really is up to. The angels are presented as not the demons, but nevertheless in the same kind of strange, bizarre doubt and uh, darkness. And the truth is, actual angels are unlike, completely unlike both of those images. Nothing like them at all. All right? Angels are incorporeal, meaning without any body. They are therefore purely spirits, finite, not infinite like God. And they are, in effect, then just perfectly huge minds. That's what an angel is. Okay? Are they possible? That's the first question. Well, sure. There's nothing incoherent about the notion of a disembodied mind, a mind for which body was never a part of its functionality. Just because we are mind body composites, just because our minds depend, at least to some degree, on the proper functioning of the brain, it doesn't follow that there couldn't be creatures that had minds that didn't depend on the brain. Right? God exists. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a brain. And yet, he thinks. So thinking is not brain dependent. Thinking is therefore also not brain identical. Those are important things to keep in mind. So, is an angel possible? Sure. Well, is it probable that they exist? Well, the old medieval philosophers thought this was a very interesting problem. They noticed the world was full of rocks. And in that class of objects, there's a lot. Then they noticed it's full of vegetables. And again, Lots and lots of varieties, lots and lots of numbers of each kind. Then in the animals, again, massive numbers. Humans, put us over here because we're composites. Lots of us. God, how many of them are there? One. Good, we've learned something so far. Excellent work. <laughs> One God only, supreme infinite being, right? But then there's this big gap. Huge gap. You say, well, what's the gap? Well, remember, we are mind, body, both of them not infinite, so finite. God is pure mind, and of course, infinite. So what's the possible middle area? Finite mind that is not bodied, so in Corporeal, poor, real Not, or in, finite minds that are incorporeal. And the medieval philosopher said it would be really strange if you have all these varieties of rocks, veggies, and animals, and then all of a sudden you have this massive gap between them and God. That would be a universe that seems incomplete and odd. Now, does that prove that angels exist? Can we give a proof for angels like we can for ourselves, or the existence of God? Not in the same way. Right? You know that you exist. You know that you're a thinking thing. You look around at each other. You realize the rest of us exist. Thus, there's a whole lot of human beings. God, we did a proof for him. We can see that he has to exist as the cause of all things. But angels? There's nothing necessary about angels. So to know whether they exist, we'd have to move beyond possibility and probability. And we'd have to you know, meet one. That's kind of how you know things exist, right? Do unicorns exist? Well, have you ever seen a unicorn? Well, no. Well, have you met someone who has? No. So, do we have any accounts of angels? And then you start to look into the past and you find that the ancient pagan texts are full of beings that look an awful lot like our conception of angels. Winged beings. Etruscan tomb art. The Etruscans put their art inside the caskets so you open them up, you can see the paintings inside. Uh, In the form of Rome some of the columns and some of the decorative elements include beings that look a lot like angels the Persian art, you similarly find these sorts of winged creatures. And of course, in the Jewish text, we have angels every time you turn around, right? There's angels in Genesis all the way to the end in Daniel. Christian texts, the most famous of all angelic visitations is the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So for sure, in the Christian texts, we have widespread experience of angels. say, but what about today? Well, here's what's interesting about today. Uh, we've renamed things, right? If we want to talk about beings like angels or demons or ghosts, we have a different word. We use the word paranormal now. And if you say to people, well, have you ever had any experience with something paranormal? Well, what if I just asked you, all right? Do you yourself ever have had an experience that you would put in the category of the paranormal? Or have you known somebody closely that has related to you a story that you would say, yeah, I put that in the category of the paranormal? How many raise your hands and say, "Yeah, one or the other." All right, about what? Fifty percent? Forty-eight percent? Fifty? That's typical. That's how many people have had experiences of what seems to be an incorporeal kind that are difficult to explain, and they're reasonably curious about. Which means there's something to be investigated. Right? there's something to be investigated. Something is going on, and we're no different than the ancients. We seem to run into these sorts of things from time to time. And so we can't just buy into the modern materialist prejudice that this thing sounds weird, therefore, you know, it doesn't exist. On the contrary, we have to look and see. Now, as we approach it from a Catholic standpoint, we have a stronger standpoint. It's not just wait and see, because the founding people in our church, Jesus himself, talk about angels authoritatively. And so we know from that standpoint that angels definitely exist. And this means that the study of angels is one of those places that special revelation from within the church and the experiences of human beings over here converge to give us an enriched picture if you only went with human experience you would not know as much about angels if you only went with the religious text you would not know as much about angels and remember how we said at the beginning that science and faith are the two means of inquiry to know both streams of information that God has provided. And as Catholics, we're in the extraordinary position to be able to take advantage of both those sets of information, put them together, and try to see what we can figure out. And that's where the angel and our knowledge of angels is extraordinary. So, what are angels? Angels are huge minds. Perfectly huge huger, bigger than any mind you've ever experienced. The littlest angel might, in fact, be smarter than Einstein. We are very ignorant compared to angels. Angels don't have bodies. When we see them in bodies, that's simply a representation. Or if it's physical, like if you touched an angel and you said, oh, I I feel skin, that's because they can devise extremely elaborate suits designed to trick you. If that's their mission... They're going to look as human as anything else. But they are not souls. They are not fitted for bodies. So if an angel were in a body, it would be more like, remember I gave you the example of the captain in the ship? The angel would know about his ship, his body, from the outside, as it were. He wouldn't feel a hole a, running into a rock and feel it the way you would if you were, you were, know, your leg was hit. An angel wouldn't have that experience. So if you put your hand in a hot stove... You're going to instantly pull back, right? Your autonomic service, autonomic nervous system, takes over without the invent, intervention of your mind. For an angel, it's going to be a mental event. He will be actively seeing what's around him, and well, probably he wouldn't even put his finger on the stove in the first place. We are the adults that do this, but he would pull his hand back. But it would be different. For example, I've got this private little test. I've devised to determine whether it's an angel at the stove. And you can see what I mean by this. And this will help illuminate what angels are and how they're different. You know how when um, you're sitting here like this and you look down and suddenly you realize there's a spider next to your hand? And your reaction is like this? And I could have just whacked Elisa right in the face. Right? Or you know how you pull your hand back and you hit a doorknob or worse, a nail on the wall? All right, you're like, if only reason had intervened in that case, I would have looked at the situation and thought, I will not pull my hand back so fast from the spider, right? You have caused yourself more damage. Now, in normal human experience, this automatic reaction is in fact very healthy. It saves us from all kinds of damage. Imagine if you knew your finger was on the stove because you said, hmm, you smell something burning? Very interesting. I wonder what that could be. And then you look down, ah, I see by my visual experience that my hand is on fire. I think at this time I will remove it and put it under the water. By this point, the damage to your hand is severe. So we have this incredible passive system where our minds passively receive the information from the burning and then instantly react and our mind catches up, bang, when you've already hit your hand on the the nail. But normally it works great. But an angel? No. An angel does not have a passive system. He's not designed to be in a body and receive sensory information. Angels don't learn by gathering facts up and saying, oh, I see what's in common. These things are all swans. They don't do science like that. Angels know everything from the top down. They understand birds, and then they know all the categories down within them. Completely opposite from the way human beings work. Because we work from sensation, draw things up, have experience like that, because we have bodies, not angels. So an angel, if he's up there and he touches the hot stove, he's going to move his hand. But he will never move that hand and strike the nail. You'll watch as he stops, and you would be like, that's very suspicious. That doesn't seem like an entirely passive human reaction. I wonder if this is an angel. And now you have a little test that you can use to test for angels. So if someone you think is an angel, bring them over, try to get them near the hot stove, and turn it on and see what happens, right? No, that's unlawful experimentation. I can see all the psychologists there. No, don't do it. Don't do it. By the way, I'm not sure that's actually a valid test. This is just one of the things I've thought of. This is not official church teaching. <clears throat> not official church teaching, yes. Okay, see? We've... <laughs> All right. But what's the point? The point is that angels do not mix it up with the physical according to their nature. They engage the physical because they have some mission, some objective, some purpose. And so what we want to think about is what is that purpose? Because the angel's realm is the realm of the mind, which means angels are all about ideas. They are all about ideology. Ideology are sets of ideas that go together to try to achieve some end. With that in mind, let's think about their morality. We do understand their nature. Angels, like us, are persons. They have mind. They are minds. Because they're persons, they have reason, they have intellect and will, just like God and just like human beings, and therefore, they also are free agents, meaning they also get to choose between good and evil. Now, the difference for an angel compared to us is the way their choice works. See, for us, what we are, what we choose, is something that has to be kind of figured out as it slowly stretches out over time. You might choose one thing today, and the next they choose the exact opposite. So which one is really your choice? We'd say, well, let's see what happens the next time. Oh, okay. Well, what's the next time? And if you're constantly back and forth, we still have a word for you. We call you indecisive. Now we know something about you. But for human beings, because we're instantiated in matter, the matter has to sort of be firmed up by our spirit, which informs, remember it's the form, it's the soul, and it forms the us as we slowly go through time, and that's why for human beings, we know who we are, but by looking at our character, by looking at our habits, and that's why we've made such an important emphasis for our lives on virtues, which are good moral habits, and vices, which are bad moral habits. Remember we talked about that? Well, what if you have no body? What if you're not stretched out in space and time like a human being? Then you wouldn't have habits at all, would you? So, how do angels choose? Well, they don't choose spread out. They're not growing and becoming something. Angels don't start as infants and then grow up. Angels are made in their completeness from the moment of their creation. And when they make a choice, a moral choice, they make it with all of themselves. No reservation. No drawing back. It's complete. And the angels, thus, have one moral choice. They were free agents with respect to morality one time. That's all they needed. Once having chosen, they can't draw back in any respect because it was all. It's like when you're playing poker and you're all in. That's the way angels play. We put a few chips in and wait and see what happens. Okay, not the angels. And as a result, the angels made that choice way back before human nature was even created. Thus, they are free agents, essentially, but now they're committed. And so we now divide this category of incorporeal finite finite minds into two classes. The ones that chose wisely and good, we call them angels. And the ones that chose poorly and evil, we call them demons. So the term angel can refer up here to the whole class of everybody. But generally speaking, we use the term angel to oppose the word demon. Everyone understand? The nature is angelic. But then the ones that made the right choices are the ones we properly call angels, specifically angels, and the other ones are called <coughs> demons. Everyone understand so far? Okay, now remember, they made that choice way back, before human nature was even in existence. Which means, and this is really weird to think about, the threat to the human race, really, from what we can tell so far at least, isn't extraterrestrial, is extra-cosmic. Because our opponents are the demons, and they are beings who have been around before we even existed, and they're not physical at all. So it's not like they're from Alpha Centauri and they fly in a UFO or a spaceship and they land and they say, take me to your leader. Angels have been at war with God from way back before that, and they are not part of this universe at all because they're pure thinking things. That's it. And thus, it's not really ETs that are the threat. It's these extra cosmic beings who really, from our standpoint, we would probably say, you don't even belong here, get lost. The problem is, instead of learning to love each other and fight the real enemy, what do we do? We listen to all their bad advice and we turn on each other. And we saw last week how some of the weapons that the angel, that the demons try to employ like trying to convince us to give up our human nature and become animal like on the one hand or pure spirits on the other we fall in for these ridiculous tricks and then they just laugh it up while we try to depart from our own nature so that's what they're up to okay they're up to trying to thwart god they tried to thwart god at the original beginning these demons did they were thrown out of heaven by saint michael the archangel and where did they end up landing quote-unquote, landing, here. You say, well, that doesn't seem very fair. Let me be blunt with you, my friends. This isn't about fairness. <laughs> right? It's not about fairness. God's not really interested in fairness. What he's interested in is justice. People getting what they deserve. It might not be fair, but in the end, he is going to be victorious. If it were just us against the demons, it would really be very unfair. But we still have our free wills. The rocks, they don't have free wills. The veggies, no free wills. The animals, no free wills. The other angels and demons, their free wills are set. They chose. God, of course, pure goodness. The only beings that we're aware of left that still have moral choice for or against God is right here. And that is why we are the battleground. The question is, can these human beings be persuaded to prove God wrong in making man by getting them of their own free choice to reject their own nature, reject the good that God made for them, and on the one hand, try to become like us by shedding the body and creating all kinds of weird religious systems that turn on the human nature so they can pretend or think ridiculously, but we'll make them think this, that they can become pure spirits and ascend as pure consciousness which we will never let happen, by the way, right? Or, on the other hand, can we convince these adults to abandon their composite nature of spirit and matter, animal and rationality, and instead go into pure animality? right? Pursuing the philosophy that's most prevalent in the United States, which is hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure as the supreme good. And that's what you see people end up going for, right? You see some people pursuing wanton abandon of all moral restraint and just give in to their desires, And their lives look more and more animal-like, without restraint, without self-control, without wisdom and order. Or on the other hand, can we convince them to abandon their nature in the other direction, toward the spirit side alone? And abandon all the ordered physicality, order of family, the order of the state and the arts, sciences, that is present within human nature. You say, that sounds a lot like those two extremes. Too much, too little. Exactly. As you'll remember from our reading of the virtues, the virtue is that balance, that fullness of the two together. But what the demons hate, they hate, is your nature. You stand as a thing that they think never should have been made. They are repulsed by the fact that spirit, free, rational personhood, has been given to creatures made out of bone and flesh. And the fact that God chose to love us blows their minds. That he chose to become one of them is simply too much. Now, two-thirds of this whole set said, okay, this is too much, all right, but we don't resent it. We're like, what do you know? God did it again. We thought we were cool when we were made. We thought the dinosaurs and the tribolites and the cats, we thought those were cool when they were made. But now, this new thing blows our minds. Therefore, God is even more wonderful than we had thought. All right, that is good. Free agency, used for goodness, angel. They got the angel star. However, that one third, mm-mm. these are the resenters, the enviers, the people proud, right? And said, we resent this creation. We hate it. And now we're going to show God up by getting these little things disgusting creatures to turn on themselves and thereby to turn on God. And ultimately to turn on themselves by rejecting the incarnate God. Which is why they thought the greatest moment was when they got us to kill Jesus. Now admittedly, from a human nature standpoint, this was our lowest moment. Killing the Son of God, very low, right? You almost think to yourself, well, maybe they're right. Maybe we're just bad to the bone. Well, some people do choose bad to the bone. That's true. But you remember the story of the lost sheep? For one sheep, the shepherd comes out to find that one. Remember the story of the ten lepers? The one leper came back. So God is willing to fish for that one remaining fish. He keeps casting the line, right? Right? And then there's these stellar examples that say, nope, I'm not going to go that route. I'm going to choose the other way. Think about Joshua and Caleb against all the other spies. You think about Daniel and his three friends, right? And of course, the best example of all, Blessed Virgin Mary, who said yes. And boy, the angel, those demons, they just, they hate her. They hate her. All right, any questions so far? We understand their nature, their pure minds. We understand the morality. They get to choose freely between good and evil. We understand their purpose, the demon's purpose at least, is to thwart the divine objective. The angelic purpose then is to support the divine objective. You might say, wait a minute, Jeff. How do we know that angels don't have completely alternative missions in virtue of their nature that have nothing to do with us? Oh, I agree with you. I suspect they have vast other things they do. They're thinking things. They think. I know. you are like, wouldn't it be great to read an angelic library? Oh, I, that's on my bucket list. You betcha. Absolutely. They're the best thinkers. They must be the greatest philosophers. But for us, in our purpose, given this goal of bringing human beings into completeness with God, that is the central objective. There'll be plenty of time to read books and chat later. Right now, we're, at the, we're in the war. All right, so let's talk about the kinds of angels. Angels are not instantiated in matter. They don't have bodies. They don't belong to bodies. They're not spread out through bodies. Human nature is spread out through bodies. Like if we were to compare each other, we'd say, well, your hair is a little bit shorter or longer, right? You're a little taller. You're a little bit different. We make a big deal of these differences, but we're all human, right? And we're all human because we have the same nature spread out through matter all differently. For angels, there's no matter. You say, what does that mean? That means that every single angel is his own species. See, species are a general kind that spread out multiply instantiations. So you have dog after dog after dog after dog after dog. Each one is different, a different material example of a dog. You agree? But if you just have the concept, dog, there's one concept of what it means to be a dog. So what if the being is the concept and there's no matter? Then there can only be one of each kind. That's the way angels are. Every angel is as different from every other angel as a bat is from a hippopotamus. That's how different they are. Humility, no, 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 I'm sure I've heard about species of angels. Like, uh, what about guardian angels, Dr. seal? Yeah, what about the cherubim? Surely those are classes of angels. Yes, they are classes of angels. But they are not species of angels. Those are angels coordinated and grouped together according to their jobs. So whereas human beings are pretty much equal, I mean, according to our nature, we're equal, right? We even code that into our law. Before God, he loves us all the same. We are the same kinds of beings. Angels are not equal. There is no equality anywhere in the angels. That's why we say angels are in ranks in a pure hierarchy. That's why we use the language of the military to describe them. Angels are an army, and there is a pure hierarchy from top to bottom, from bottom to top. No equality anywhere within the angels. Human nature, equal. Angelic natures, unequal. Totally different in kind. And so when we try to talk about the angels, we rank them in a hierarchy. A hierarchy of the powers that they have. What kind of powers do they have? Well... Since their minds, their powers are mental. So, what do they do? In their own minds, they think thoughts. With respect to one another, they communicate how? Telepathically. Telepathically. You say, why? Why don't they just talk? They have no lips. <laughs> we need a physical medium between each other to talk, right? If we don't have the physical world holding in a constant order, we literally cannot talk to each other. We can't communicate. Telepathy is an angelic power. That's how they communicate. Okay, You can start to see why some of the objectives of people, some of our superhero fascination maybe, the X-Man fascination, and the people that are kind of into the occult, hoping to get supernatural powers, or like the highest levels of Scientology claim, well, you'll be able to read minds, and you'll be able to move objects with your mind. And, all of those powers are what kinds of powers? Angelic. Now you know where they come from and what they think they're offering, which, of course, is why they'll never be achieved. All right. If they're going to move objects, again, they move them with their mind. Of course, we also move them with our mind. Remember I gave you the wonderful example of, wow, I can make things float. I, of course, can't catch them, but you understand the idea? You say, but an angel could do that without an arm. Yes, that's correct. And again, I ask you the question, so what? So So he moves it with his mind alone, you use your mind by your hand, but that's how they would move an object. All using the mind. Now, can I erase this? I'm running out of board. Let's take a look at those ranks and we'll understand better how the angels function with respect to one another and what they do. Because in the Bible, we find nine different terms that describe the angels. Keep in mind that these ranks are in both the demonic and the good angels. And keep in mind, too, that these ranks are by, um, think of them as kinds of jobs. The ranks are split into threes. And there are three of the threes, hence nine. The lowest rank of angels are concerned with human events and persons. Human events and persons. The lowest rank of all, the ones that are in the nitty-gritty, as it were, the most are the guardian angels. Sometimes just called angels. We'll talk more about the guardian angels later, but you can imagine what they do. They guard. Right? <laughs> okay. The next level is the archangel. The archangels function, think of them as military commanders, generals. Okay, And they are the ones that carry out specific divine missions that have to do with human beings. Hence, Gabriel, an archangel, came down and told Mary about the incoming Christ. Or St. Michael came down at one point and rescued one of these angels who was trying to deliver a message to Daniel. That angel got stuck because a demon, the prince of Persia, grabbed him and held him off for two weeks. So that angel finally called for help, called in the airstrike. In came St. Michael and released this angel so he could run off to Daniel give the message, then the angel said, well, I got to get back to help St. Michael fight the prince. He said, okay, get message delivered, back he goes into the fight. You're like, what are you talking about? <sighs> I don't know. <coughs> I don't know. What would it mean for angels to be at war with each other? What would it mean for mind-to-mind war? Don't know. I'm glad I'm not in it. The idea of something invaded your mind? You Imagine. That's what we're talking about, that kind of mental pressure, the worst kind. So it was a fight, and the one angel needed the other angel to help him out. Archangel called in. (coughs) There are some weird things in the Bible, weird things. But you pull them out, and you put them in your angel folder. And then you start to read them all, you're like, oh, I see a picture picture emerging. Keeping in mind, again, that we know extremely little about angels, very little. But what we do now, we try to gather together. And this is the traditional hierarchy of where they go. The next one up are the princes, and thus they're called principalities. These are, think of them as, So these are the commanders, generals. The principalities function uh, for groups. They function to sort of oversee uh, groups like the churches, states. Hence, the prince of Persia was a principality. Okay. And the idea was there was a demonic being called the Prince of Persia who was moving and trying to help Persia achieve its ends. St. Michael has also been called the Prince of Israel and also the Guardian and Prince of the Church. You say, well, can one angel have two jobs? Maybe. Maybe. Elise and I were discussing at dinner prior to coming over here. It, it wouldn't surprise you. If you do anything well, what do people immediately do? They give you more work. <laughs> okay. But maybe not. Again... We're not sure. This whole chart I'm about to give you is also speculative. We really don't know. Some people can't fathom how you could possibly have archangels down here. They've always thought the archangels were the top dogs, right? Otherwise, how can a mere, mere archangel on this list, right, overcome Lucifer, who we're gonna find out is probably a seraph? If it's a pure hierarchy, how could he acquire the power, right? And so that leads you to think, well, maybe the archangels are on top. Or the other possibility is that angels, like human beings, receive grace. Yes? And think about what Lucifer said, I will be like unto the Most High. And what does Michael mean in Hebrew? It means, who is like unto God? So what would God do, thinking-wise, to defeat a challenge of Lucifer's kind? He would answer it with, who is like unto me? You think you're going to be able to do what I do? Who is like unto God? And that would immediately activate which mind? (coughs) St. Michael. And thus, Michael would be activated to go to war. Now, could God give Michael the grace to overcome the most powerful angel ever created? Of course. So, do we know then for sure that St. Michael, by his own nature, is above all the rest of the angels? No. Was he able to defeat Lucifer? Definitely. Was that by grace or by his original nature? Who knows? I don't know. I would like to know because everything is interesting. But, you know, I don't. I don't suppose you know either. So just one of those things we don't know. OK, so that's the first lowest level triad. And lowest simply because we're talking about direct interaction with what's going on with human nature. The second triad are all related to God's providence and plans. So think of this as your logistics troops, right back at headquarters, organizing everything. And so the next group, the lowest of this triad is called the powers. All right, and the powers function as uh, governors and big warriors' angels. And they tend to oversee and relate the things that come from above down here. Think of them, um, I, I guess, I'm going to keep using military analogies because these work. You know how um, back in the day before they had the radios, you know, like Lord Wellington, he'd be standing there with his, his staff and he'd want to send, oh, get a message over to that regiment, right? And in the heat of battle, maybe they couldn't see your flags or hear your trumpets, so you'd get a, a, a lieutenant, and you'd say, look, take this communique, race over there, and send the message, yeah? So you could imagine having officers like this who did this. Uh, the, you know, An angel was doing that kind of job with Daniel, trying to get a message to him, and he was detained. The next one up are the virtues. This might surprise you. Because you're like, wait, I thought virtues were, you know, good moral habits and there's theological virtues and intellectual virtues. Now you're telling me that there's angels who are virtues? What's the question? Which word?
1: The the word I can't, um, uh, no, no, yes.
0: Plannings. Plannings. Should be planning, probably singular, but I don't think plannings is a word. Let's just get rid of that S. Probably it's the grammar that's bothering you. No, it's... Fixed. (laughs) Ta-da. I should have said Logistics. All right, so the virtues, yes, the virtues are moral habits in us, right? Intellectual habits that are good. In God, the virtues are the eternal essence of those things. Turns out there's virtues in God in that sense, not habits, of course. In the angels, they are actual names of certain angels. Faith is the name of an angel. You think, well, what does faith do? Think about that. What do you think faith does? thinks about and operates all things related to what? Faith, hope, is a virtue. Charity is a virtue. Fortitude is a virtue. Justice is a virtue. And you have seen exemplifications in the human art of these virtues. You've seen justice holding up her scales. Right? Think about this. And there's seven, famously, the three theological virtues and then the four cardinal virtues. You'll often see them in sets from um, medieval and renaissance art. Notice they're always in the feminine. Right? Why? Because these are battle angels, and so they're always presented to us in masculine terms. The virtues are out back here drawing like huge magnets. Everybody toward charity. (laughs) Everybody toward faith in this deep, nurturing way. They're massive powers, enormously powerful angels, who are just constantly pulling us along like magnets. You understand the idea? And that passive nurturing, working to engineer things and bring everything to its fulfillment, that's a much more feminine conception. And that's why in art, these angels are characterized in the feminine. Now, again, remember, angels don't have biology, so they're neither male nor female. But it doesn't follow from that that they don't have masculinity and femininity the masculine and the feminine are higher level concepts and are mere instantiations in biology. So I am masculine in physicality hence male, right? You are feminine in conception, instantiated in body hence female. But you could have a masculine angel, St. Michael, but you could have a feminine angel, Justice. Okay? We don't the church doesn't officially say these angels are feminine but they operate in a feminine way. And they are also connected to the spheres, moral and theological. There's also a, there's obviously one called wisdom. So it's intellectual virtue. It's just all the virtues. You get the idea. But in addition to the moral, theological, and intellectual virtues, they also are the ones that seem to have been connected to the planets, the operation of the heavens, astronomical objects. Back in the day some people thought that the angels had bodies or could be associated with the bodies and the planets were the bodies of the gods. And if you think back, remember we named all the planets after the gods Mercury, Venus, Mars, right? So and remember all these beings would have by the ancients have been called gods. Right, we now understand, A, we don't worship them, so we don't call them gods, and B, they've all chosen between good and evil, so we use our theological terms. But that's how they would have. So the, the ones that had to do with the planets would have been in this virtue category. Good, everyone good on this? Okay, next, dominions. Okay, And again, these, the dominions are the ordering principle for these. They order all hierarchies on the way down. Okay, so general planning and providence. Now, this is God. <laughs> okay. The next three are all directed directly to the essence of God. First one is the throne of God, or the thrones. Okay, the thrones. The thrones are the order of God's um, unchanging attributes you can and that's why the throne is a good description almost like the thing that God sits on that is established that never moves and is eternally perfectly the order right so if you were to we don't have kings and queens anymore but right you know how back in the day there's the throne room and there's a chair and that's the only place that the king is allowed to sit well no i got that backwards only the king is allowed to sit there and that represents something. It represents an unchanging order of justice and all the kingly authority. Think of the thrones as the thing on which God sits. In fact, in one of the texts, God literally sits on the thrones. And they are rings of fire. They're the least personal of all the angels that, in terms of depiction. Next one up, you probably heard of these ones. They're called the cherubim. Or cherubs. Again, not cherubs. I know we've got this idea of a cherub as a little baby angel. No, 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 no. There's no baby angels, all right? And these are nothing like cherubs in that sense. Eam is plural in Hebrew, hence multiple. So the cherubs or the cherubim, these are all about wisdom and divine providence. So these oversee everything having to do with divine intelligence and plan and they seem to be assigned in the world. Interestingly, they do have a direct application in the world, because they were overseeing the ark. In fact, the um, do you remember in the building of the ark of the covenant? They get the box right, all coated in gold, and then there were two cherubs, cherubim, that were spread in their wings like this. They, of course, were made out of wood, with you know covered in gold. But the idea is, the cherubim would actually be overseeing the ark. The actual ones. <clears throat> And of course, that's where God met the high priest. So it's the direct place of God. You understand? And finally, the seraphs. These are really wild angels. The seraphim. These are the six wings. Keeping in mind, again, that a wing is a physical thing. And so this is a way of them to represent to us what they are. And, and we also use the wing to indicate a being of the air. And the word for air or breath or spirit in Greek is pneuma. So all those words kind of go together. And it makes us think of something that's lifted up and higher than we are, which of course is true. And the seraph has six wings, two to fly with, two to cover his face, and two to cover his feet. Because his mission is to eternally fly around the throne of God. And they're blazing fire all the time. And they're the ones that say the holy, holy, holy that we sing in the Sanctus in the liturgy. These are the ones that do this eternally. And the liturgy is a participation in what's happening in the eternal throne of heaven. So much so that in the Orthodox Church, they say that when the Mass is consecrated, a conduit, a doorway opens between heaven and earth. And heaven pours out angels into the church. So in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, the parents will whisper to the kids, watch where you step, so you don't step on an angel. Which is cool. Of course, you can't technically step on an angel. I know what you're objecting to, but you know, for children, you tell them these things. In other words, be quiet and pay attention. That's the version. Don't step on an angel. Six wings on fire around the throne. And again, to help make the case that these are not classes of angels by like species, it's interesting to compare the two depictions of the seraphim that we get. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah is taken up to the throne of God, and he sees these beings with the six wings flying around the throne of God, All aflame crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And they all look the same. And you'd be like, well, it looks to me like we have six equal angels. So maybe they are the species. And these are six exactly the same. Okay, fine. Then we go to St. John's revelation. All the way at the end of the New Testament. And again, John now is at the throne of God. He sees the throne. He sees the flying angels with the six wings all on fire saying exactly the same thing. But we get a close-up. And then you see that every one of the angels is different. In addition to the wings, they have like the head of a goat in the body of an eagle or weird eyes all over them. One's like that has the head of a lion. I mean, it's just weird from our standpoint. You know what I mean? Here's the real issue they're different. Okay? Every one of the seraphs is different from the other ones, which goes to the point here. Okay? The seraphim have a job to do but they're not identical to each other. Every one of them is very different from the other. And when they're represented to us, they're represented visually because, you know, how would you explain definitionally to, just as a concept, what these angels are to people like us? That's very hard. So they try to sort of represent themselves, and they don't sometimes do the best job because we just get freaked out. And you'd be like, well, is it just possible that angels can't exactly connect with the human senses? Yes, that is definitely correct. It may just be that they are so enormously powerful and huge that trying to represent themselves, especially the higher order angels, is just very difficult. I mean, Daniel is this really holy prophet, and one of these great powerful angels shows up to him one time, and he just keeps falling into unconsciousness every time. The angel keeps touching him, like divinely waking him up, and then he goes to sleep again. So we're just, you know, we're little creatures. We're little creatures. And around really great creatures, sometimes we have a problem staying awake, right? And that's fine because, again, the angels aren't just made for us. These angels are made for themselves, and they are made for God. And you need really great, powerful creatures to attend to God Most High. But when we meet them, we might struggle. And you say, well, I don't see how lions and eyes, how does that all work? Well, it would take some thought. But the angel is way bigger than we can experience. If you really want to read something that tries to fictionally capture what angels are, read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. You probably know him from the Narnia books, right? He wrote a trilogy of science fiction called with, uh, the Space Trilogy. It starts with Out of the Silent Planet, then Paralandra, and then That Hideous Strength. And Paralandra has some of the best depictions of these conceptions that you can find anywhere. So if you're interested, uh, maybe for Christmas, grab, um, have to put that on your list and then read those three books and you will be amazed. Okay, any questions about these nine ranks? Nine, they're sometimes called choirs, even though, again, we're not talking about singing.
1: Could you, uh, say, the devil, Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air. Um, Where would that fall
0: into the? Well, Satan. Well, uh, if if he's a prince, then he would be a principality. He would function as a principality.
1: Yeah, but he's
0: not. Well, he, remember, maybe one angel does multiple jobs. Okay, but what else was he called originally? What does Lucifer mean? Morning star. Um, and light bearer. Light bearer. So who bears the most light in here? And so the classical conception is that either Lucifer was a seraph, some people think maybe a cherub. But either way, he was extremely high. Some people think he was the highest seraph, which is why his rebellion is so you know, poignant and difficult to deal with. But even the greatest creature that God ever made, still, if it's a person, and to be the greatest ever, you'd obviously have to be a person, given what we understand, gets free choice. Okay.
1: Um, what is the etymology of the word angel and one
0: Angel, um, the word angel just means messenger. So
1: what does it break down as? Because L is is light, right?
0: <laughs> well, I'm using the Greek. See, A- A- angelos is Greek, not Hebrew. So, I see what you mean because there's L in there, but it's not Hebrew. So. You got Oh, the Hebrew name's there. Oh, right, right, right. What am I saying? Of course. I thought you were talking about angel. You're talking about Raphael, Mikhail. Yeah. yeah, the L there is God. Like Elohim? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's and, of God.
1: Uh, an angel, does it break down? is the same way? Like maybe yeah. the Greeks borrowed it? Or, and then what, what, is yeah.
0: the, what is the root word for demon? Do you know? Demon? Yeah. It, uh, it means like a spirit. Would it be like... Oh, okay. Sometimes, see, in the, some of these Greek words... Uh, can be used different way in the same way that we do. Like there's a spiritual component to human nature. We have a spirit, but we aren't spirits. The word daemon in Greek can mean uh, the human mind. It can mean a being outside the human beings. Um, And it doesn't imply that it's bad. If you read Plato,
1: Socrates often is referring, referred to as possessing, having a demon or daemon, being inspired by a daemon, possessed, being possessed by a daemon. If you read the description, it's in no way describing or capturing what we would understand as a fallen angel. It's either talking about um, a genius that he had that came across as superhuman, or some people have speculated that he was gifted
0: actually with inspiration from one of the angels that would periodically communicate with him, if that makes sense. The archangels have with
1: their names, so like Michael is who is like God. Gabriel, I think, means messenger of God. I think Raphael means healer of God. So that is where all of those.
0: That's where the L's are. And you're right, those are all Hebrew, hence the L's. But Angelos just happens to be uh, an L in there. There's no etymological connection between Greek and Hebrew. But it's a good, it's a, it's a great question. <laughs> I mean, for all we know, it could be, you know, it could be. just happens not to be. Any other questions so far? All right, let's talk about then, once we understand their nature and these kinds, let's talk about angelic and human interaction. What do they do interaction-wise? Well, one of the most important things they've done, although this is very rare, is revelation. They come down from God and they tell you something that's simply not knowable to natural human reason. Hence, it would be an article or an object of faith. The most famous, of course, is the Annunciation, but there's lots and lots of them throughout the Bible. Um, and so sometimes they will give important information by revealing something. Another thing angels sometimes do with respect to human beings is to intervene in miraculous ways to help certain situations. So St. Peter was in prison, and that night an angel came along and said, get up, wake up, and his chains just fell right off of his wrists, and the angel then led him right through the whole prison, and all the guards ended up being asleep. Angels seemed to have this effect on people, (laughs) and took St. Peter right out, go, 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 and the angel took off. Okay, Daniel, remember thrown into the lion's den, and he survived the whole night. And Nebuchadnezzar races out and says, "Daniel, Daniel, has your God rescued you from the mouths of the lions?" Oh, please, oh, please, right? And Daniel's like, "Don't worry, everything's fine down here. The, my God sent His angel to close the mouths of the lions, and so the angel was there and shut those lions' mouths. Clearly, there are angels that have powers over natural things, natural orders, right?" Um. The three ewes in the flaming furnace, you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And uh, Nebuchadnezzar tossed them in there. And uh, then the king looked into the fire and he said, what is that? Didn't we not cast three people into the furnace? And like, yes, O oh Lord, three. But I count four. And one of them looks like a son of the gods. One of the gods, right? Well, what would an angel look like if he manifested and he was completely blazing on fire next to the other three? Kind of like a divine being. And so, what was the angel doing in there? Well, he was shielding Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from being fried. And so much so was he able to protect them that when they came out of the fire, they weren't even singed. They didn't even smell like smoke. They were given a serious review.
1: Okay, Jacob wrestled the angel of the Lord. Yes. I have wrestled the Lord and won. Okay, is the angel of the Lord occasionally an epiphany?
0: That's the speculation. Okay. There are times when the sun seems to show up as God, but in a pre incarnate, but nevertheless seemingly physical way. Okay. And sometimes people think the phrase the angel of the Lord is the eternal Son. But we don't know. Okay. But that's one of the interpretations of that.
1: Abraham bowed and worshiped the angel of the Lord. Right. Hence, you shall worship the Lord God.
0: Right. Hence the thinking that the angel of the Lord, and when Abraham talked to him, he didn't talk to him just like he was an angel. And remember, Abraham, I think, was one of the ones called the friend of God. Seems like God just showed up and chatted with Abraham from time to time.
1: So do Catholics believe that angels are still active today and talking
0: to people or talking to people? Or does... those, those are different things. And let's get to them. We're just about there. Great question. Okay? okay? Next thing they do, besides revelation and miraculous intervention, and by the way, the miraculous intervention, I'll just mention this, there's lots of examples of things happening with people, natural disasters, cars falling on them, burning buildings, and reports where a person comes out of nowhere, suddenly walks up, does a supernatural event, like lifts an entire car, pulls someone out of a burning building, actually walks into a burning building, picks the person up, walks through the fire, they don't get burned, brings them down, drops them there, and then from the before and the after, there's no origin or source, they're just gone. Okay? And you hear, you probably heard about stories like this. Some of them might be fake, but then how did the person get out of the building? How did the person get out from under the car? So is it possible that these are miraculous interventions? Yes, it is. Do we know for sure? No, we don't. (laughs) Does it matter? Not really. But it's, you know, it's very nice. Next thing they do is they're involved in national level operations, just like they used to be. What exactly they're doing at a national level is anybody's guess. I do not know. (laughs) I can speculate, but I won't. Um, individual moral guardians is the primary mission that we find with angels. All right? They use their abilities to suggest to our desires, our imaginations, our aspirations, and our intellects that we operate in accordance with the love of God. Or, on the other hand, on the demonic side, to try to undermine that. All right. Now, let me talk about that in that way be able to better answer your question. To do that, let's talk about demons and the way that they tempt, and that will enable us to approach this. The demon is opposed to God on every level, and he uses all of his natural abilities, which are not diminished by becoming a demon, just like our powers aren't diminished by becoming you know, evil. He uses them to oppose God. And traditionally, we have classified demonic activity with respect to human beings on an individual level on three kinds of intensity. The first kind is called temptation. Now, here's what's interesting about temptation. If you are a moral person or trying to be and if you're becoming Catholic, this is one of like, you know, the things you you ought to be. You ought to want to be good. Hopefully, we've got that across to you. You know that you have dialogues internally with yourself about how you should behave because you have differing conceptions of what you should do. Your imagination might tell you one thing. Your intellect might tell you another. Your desire might tell you a third, right? And you've got to weigh this all out and decide, well, what's the best move? Another way to put it is this. Ideas pop into our head all the time. And the question is, where do they come from? Well, there's only two options. They either come from within, in other words, they pop into our minds because that's the way the human brain works, the human mind works, and thus they're internal from us. You are plenty able, on your own, to produce the vast number of ideas that occur to you. (laughs) The other possibilities are external. Now, if they're ideas and they're from an external source, they're either from human sources. You say, what would be a human source? Well, how about me? How about your spouse? How about your kid? How about the television? How about a rock band? And We can get ideas from human beings in all different ways. The advertisement on the board, right? The television commercial. We have many of our ideas that come from other human beings from outside us. But then they could also be non-human sources. You say, well, what would those be? Well. God or angels? And I'll just put and demons because now we're going to be distinguishing these more clearly. When we talk about tradition, traditionally when we talk about temptation, we say that we have to watch out from three sources of temptation. The world, which is other human beings. The flesh, which remember is that distorted appetite. That's what St. Paul means by that. Hence, that would be the internal source. And the devil. And of course, there's that. And so those are the traditional three sources of temptation. So here's what happens. You get an idea to do something wrong. Now, where did that come from? Did that come from inside you? Did that come from another human being, something someone said, or you remembered? Or maybe you don't even remember, just kind of lodged in your imagination? Or is a demon actually suggesting this to you? Here's the thing. There's no way to tell. You can't tell. There's nothing about the way in which your ideas represent themselves to you that they have little tags. <coughs> Divine tag. Right? Friend tag. Self tag. Nothing. There's no qualitative difference between these ideas. Now that might alarm you. You might be like, well, I don't want to think that there's little demons flying around constantly suggesting things to me. Or guardian angels, on the other hand, it's good things. Okay. Look, it doesn't matter. That's the point. It doesn't make a bit of difference. Why? You are free. That's why you're the subject of the temptation in the first place. It also means that you get the power to what? Say no. And with the power comes the responsibility to say no. So it doesn't make a bit of difference. Do not get alarmed about the fact that the universe is filled not just with human beings and animals and plants and veggies and rocks but also this other class of being. Don't get freaked out. There's no reason to be freaked out. Why? Freedom. So, yeah, it's true. Some of the ideas that pop into your head could, in fact, come from your guardian angel. They could go from from the Holy Spirit, that if you're baptized and dwells you. It could be that they come from a, a demon. The vast majority in all likelihood just come from your own consciousness. Don't obsess about this. Don't worry about it. The best thing to do is if an idea is presented to you, and it's presented to you for whether it's true or false, like you should believe it, then ask yourself this question. Hmm, is this true? I wonder why. Why or why not? Think. Don't freak. If a course of action is presented to you, should I steal that bubble gum or not? Think. Is this good? Don't say, well, where is it from? Because if the guardian angel is saying I should steal that bubble gum, then maybe I should. No. No, 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 no. Voices in your head that Trump morality must be rejected. If they're extremely loud, see a shrink. Never, ever attribute to God your, your feelings and your thoughts. This is extremely dangerous. Could God put into your mind an idea? Absolutely. Absolutely. But if he wants you to know it's from him, in other words, if he's giving you revelation in the classical sense, then what must he add to it so that you know for sure? Well, how are you going to know that something new, brand new that he's given to you, the idea of the church, how would you know that this is a revelation from God? You would have to have what? Miraculous evidence. Okay? So you got people running around America, I've run into so many of them, who are constantly convinced that God is directing them to do this, directing them to do that, giving them this idea, God told me that. Nonsense! Mm Mm-mm. These are people who are imposing on themselves and the rest of us by saying that God is doing this. They don't know what God is doing. They don't know. So don't let them bother you. like, well, why is God talking to that person? He's not talking to me. He generally doesn't talk to us. It would be shocking, frankly, if your angel ever talked to you. That's not his mission. Our guardian angels are more like the secret service. They're soldiers. Their mission is to protect you. You don't see the president chatting up with the secret service. That's not their job. They're not friends. Your angel is not your friend. Oh, he loves you with pure, blazing charity. But that's not human affection. Not like that. He is a soldier, and he's thinking like a soldier, and functioning like a soldier. And the central mission is this. Is this person moving toward God or not? And then when the battle's over, and the war is won 10,000 years down the road, or maybe at the moment of death even, that's when you're going to meet your angel. And then you can go have a few beers, And then you can confess a few things that you're, I'm so sorry I did that, in front of you. he'll be like, "Mm mm-hmm, believe me, I know all about it. You're like, yes, I know you do. And you can talk to your angels. Every one of you in here. Right now, there's an angel for every person here. So this room is full of angels, too. And we appreciate that they're here. But there's no sense expecting them to talk to us. That's not their mission. You can talk to your angel. You can tell your angel what you're dealing with, what's troubling you. Absolutely, you should do all that. But don't expect talking back to you. Don't expect answers back. But what you might notice that if you start to do that, and you start being frank and saying, I need help, you might start to notice in your mind a perspicuity, a clarity morally. It doesn't make your moral decision any easier. In fact, it's almost more difficult because you can't come up with any tricks to tell yourself you know full well what you're supposed to do. It's so clear. And still, you're faced with a choice. You're like, Now, there's no excuses. Why did I ask the angel for help? That can happen. But be wary of this idea that God is just talking to people and making them do things and we are not marionettes. We are not puppets.
1: So, Jeff, I have a question. What you discuss is a very popular concept in a lot of really sound Protestant churches, including... Very many. ...churches that I... Person keep the Christ So, what you're saying, I think, is that we already have what we need to make the right decision. Right? Yes. We don't need God. I mean, nope. we, need God. we need God. Not in this sense. But as far as the sense of telling us what to do.
0: Right. We're not children.
1: We have the Holy Spirit within us, and what we have to do is respond.
0: Well, yeah, but what's the Holy Spirit doing? Moving us toward the proper application of our minds, using our moral knowledge that we've learned, hopefully including the scriptures which he inspired, right? In other words, there's never, does God allow us by some divine system to undermine our intellectual and moral responsibility? He's not going to just tell you what to do, like, well, I don't know what to do. If only God would just give me an audible voice. He's going to expect you to use your brain. If you don't know what to do, talk to somebody. We'll tell you. We'll give you advice. Yes. Through our our relationships with other people. We have good counsel from one another. You can talk to the priest. If the priest is like, well, this is a real conundrum, he's got friend priests, and then he can talk to the bishop. And the bishop, if it's a real conundrum, they'll eventually get a counsel and say, let's figure this one out. So we are never alone. And the angels and the divine elements can definitely help, but they're not going to substitute for the intellectual and moral responsibility that we're supposed to have. Remember, God didn't even just like give it away about Eve. He took Adam out to the field to name the animals. He didn't even tell him this is a a wife realization mission. That's why Adam was taken out to name the animals. God, I mean, whether you call them a lion or a giraffe, why does this matter? What matters to God is I want Adam to understand that he is incomplete. So I'm gonna take him out, have him do this. It's a rational activity. God doesn't cheat and say, come on, I, look, there's two. You know, there's always two. Can you figure this out? Adam can use his brain. God waits. So God respects intellectual activity, expects us to use our brains. The demons don't. The demons are against reason. They always try to thwart reason. This is why in the screw tape letters, at one point, screw tape, uh, screw tape, no wormwood. Or Who's no, worm? Brain. Screw tape is the uncle demon, right? The tempter? My dear worm. Yeah. yeah tape tells Wormwood to, um, if, his cl- if the patient is close to doing the right thing, suggest he go get lunch. <coughs> Always block reason, because reason is on the side of the enemy. And from the demon's standpoint, the enemy, of course, is our side, the angels. So, we are supposed to use reason. And if somebody thinks they can shortcut the epistemic responsibility, the use of wisdom, uh, by skipping that and just saying, well, I feel this, so therefore it must be God... That's tremendously convenient, right? And then look at the way that imposes on everybody. If somebody talks to you and says, well, God led me to do this, what are you supposed to say? Well, that strikes me as extremely imprudent and foolish, and you just put all these people in danger. Well, but if God led you, it must be an act of faith. No, not faith. That's the sin of presumption. So we we do not do this. We're not supposed to do this. We're also forbidden to practice divination, which is doing what? Trying to get divine signs about what to do. And yet lots of people in America and not just in Protestantism you find this even within some Catholic circles will do these kinds of things and th- if only god would tell me what to do he's not going to tell you he already told you what to do he told you to use your brain yeah and praying
1: for wisdom is not what you described correct that's what god wants us to do yes to
0: pray, for pray for wisdom and then use the resources he gave us yes uh, you know the our, bible, the bible yes. our friends the church the priest mm-hmm. our own minds I mean we have a wealth of people that can help us and we should take advantage of them. That's one of the advantages by the way of confession. When you go in the priest and talk in confession it's not just I confess okay you're forgiven. There's also a counsel element there that's extraordinary. That can happen because the priest has been through so many different ways in which people get tempted and th- I mean think about the experience a priest has an understanding sin and temptation I mean it's unbelievable. So if you have a question, wow, you can specifically, how do I deal with this little thing? Amazing.
1: See, that's amazingly uh, empowering. Yes. What you just described is incredibly empowering. Yeah. Because the other is less so.
0: It makes you a slave.
1: It does. If you wander around like, I'm not hearing from God. Yep. I do, I do. And
0: it undermines your specialness. Because everybody that says, well, God talked to me, the, clearly they're special. Well, why doesn't God talk to me? I must not be special. No. You're all special. Why? Because God loved you. And Jesus died on the cross for you. And if that isn't good enough for you, I don't know what, sh- what else does he have to do? Make you give you a little warm fuzzy and now you feel spiritual? I mean, come on. What are we, children? This is ludicrous. How do you really feel,
1: Jeff?
0: <laughs> 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 Alright, anyway. <laughs> so matters. Temptation resist it. <laughs> Ideas can come from all kinds of sources. We don't worry about this. Use your freedom, choose wisely. Should you depend on your guardian angel in the sense of asking him for help? Yes. Can you talk to him? Sure. Is he gonna talk back to you? No. You might get lucky, okay? But then you're gonna be responsible for that, so don't ask for that. Just be content that he's operating, because he's there. And if you're gonna sin in private, just realize he's there, you're never alone. (laughs) Keep that in mind. All right, next kind of thing that these demons do. This is completely normal. This is the main battleground, again, because the issue is free will. It's called obsession. And it's really a kind of intensive harassment. This is, it's not entirely clear why this seems to happen. In some cases it is. For example, um, exorcists, people that have the mission of dealing with possessions and these sorts of things, they are almost always subject to obsession because the demons really get angry at exorcists. Not surprising. And so they'll do things to them and harass them. And You ever talk to an exorcist? Sometimes give him a couple of glasses of scotch, get him talking, and you'll just find out all the nonsense that they have to deal with on a weekly basis from sometimes demons being obsessed with them and just making their lives grievous. But for most of us, this isn't an issue. And then the one that you hear about in the movies and things is, of course, possession. And this is even rarer of the rare. Rare of the rare. So, what what is um, what is possession? Well, possession is an event where the person in question does something that literally undermines his own freedom by inviting the demon in. Remember, you're free; you have command of your body. But if you if you practice the occult, or you do some of these types of things, you're opening a door. Now, the demons may not go through. It all depends on their mission objectives. Um, but if you participate in this, um, and sometimes extreme sins of particularly dark and vile manner can also do this, and you can end up with a demon coming inside of you and trying to take over your body, and it's literally a fight for control. <laughs> the two are loggerheads, and there's an enormous conflict of agony for the person, and apparently from what the exorcists say, agony for the demon, but the demon was, you know, hates you, so they seem to think this makes sense. An angel, a true goodly good angel would never possess you, ever. Because again, full respect for your free will. Okay? And remember we already talked about that the son did not possess Jesus. Right? The son is the person of Jesus. So there's not a possession in that case either. All right. So, how do we deal with this? Well, let's talk about the defense. First of all, do not be freaked out by all this. Because causing fear and causing a lack of faith and hope is one of the demonic goals. That's one of the reasons why, you know, you might be in a a weird event somewhere and someone's a witch or whatever, and they, maybe they just do, somehow display power, and maybe, most likely it's a trick, but maybe they come up with an actual demonic power and you see a pen float by or something. Just don't be impressed. Remember my pen experiment? Just do that and say, okay, we're even, right? Try resurrecting the dead, try giving life. Yeah, that'd be interesting. But we have to realize that we are at war and the enemy is not extraterrestrial, it's not something from this world, it's something extra cosmic and it's real. But nevertheless, don't be freaked out. Secondly, understand, remember, your free will is the battleground. So use it correctly by devoting your lives to truth, goodness, and beauty, faith, hope, and love. Third, realize that demons cannot be God. God is omnipotent. Also, evil cannot be goodness because evil is a lack of something which means goodness can exist without evil, but evil cannot exist without goodness, which means goodness will win in the end. So, okay, so there's a war right now. We're soldiers involved in that war, but the war's going to be over, right? Remember the seal motto? You are never out of the fight until you're dead, and you're not dead. So fight. Realize what you're at war and fight, and then when you're dead, you can rest but the demons can't win. Fourth, get baptized. If you're not baptized yet, one of the things baptism does is it confers on you the confirmation holy oils, and that's a seal from God whose you are, and it's a protection against demonic attack. So definitely get baptized. Also, take the Eucharist as often as you can once you're confirmed and uh, received into the church. Don't take the Eucharist in advance. You're not supposed to do that. But the Eucharist is a literal participation in the very essence and life of God. And the demons, they hate the Eucharist. Again, God in physical thing. They just hate it. We think it's great. So take it. Don't fail to take the Eucharist. Next, keep your heart clean and participate in confession and follow the Pauline rule. Every time the demon, or you get a temptation, again yeah, it may not be a demon, okay, but every time you get a temptation, okay, not only say no, okay, then turn it around on the enemy. How? By doing something loving. You do that enough times, the tempters are going to get aggravated. Every time I tempt this guy, he goes and does something loving for someone else. I should not waste my breath. Hopefully, that's why That's the argument they'll make. But you see the point? What did St. Paul say? Stop stealing. No to the temptation. Get a job. And then give to the poor. The best way to stop stealing is not just to stop doing it. It's to love others. So every time you say no to a sin, say yes to love. If you're jealous of someone, they've got a singing voice, and you just wish you could sing like that, Not only fight the jealousy, but give that person a compliment. See, turn every opportunity for evil into an opportunity for love. And you will double down on goodness against temptation. Next, never participate in the occult. Don't play around with it. Not the games of the kids, the Ouija boards, these sorts of things. And nothing dark. Don't do it. If you've already done it, get to the priest and do the confession. Okay, this is extremely dangerous. The most famous case of exorcism in the United States, the one in Chicago back in the 50s, started with a kid playing with a Ouija board. Again, it doesn't mean if you do a Ouija board that you're going to be possessed, but all practices of the occult open us up to potential of demonic attack. And why do it? So we do not participate in those things, and so don't do it. Our goal as human beings is to learn to love. It is not to change our nature and to try to acquire angelic power. That's not powers that are appropriate to us. We don't need them. The angels have them. That's fine. Next, remember you're not alone. You have a guardian angel. You're never alone. So it's always you and your guardian angel against one mere demon. Two against one. Good odds. And finally, don't forget the virtues. That fifth rank of angels. Let me show you something. Take a look at Ephesians 6. We all have the same version of this, so I should probably give you the page if you don't know your books yet. Ephesians is on 161, the New Testament spot, and page 164, if you've got this book, this version of the Bible, if you've got another one, it's Ephesians 6, it's after Galatians before Philippians. Here St. Paul's talking about what we've been discussing, the battle, the war. Take a look at chapter 6, verse 10, page 164 in the New Testament side. All right, here we go. Which verse? 10. 6:10. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we are not contending against flesh and blood. Other human beings are not the enemy. We are contending against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenlies. So therefore take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Notice St. Paul's fundamental principle. Stand. Hold your ground. Don't fall down. Just keep standing there. Okay? Think of a Roman legionary. The legion exists when what? All the soldiers hold to their ranks, hold those shields, and stand. So again, verse 14: Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth around your waist, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of Peace. Besides all these, take the shield of faith with which you can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and alone for me, that utterance may be given to me. So what's he saying? Our weapons are the weapons of the Spirit because we're fighting against enemy spirits. What are those weapons? The word of God, the sword of truth, And notice, peace, righteousness, faith. What are these things? Virtues. These virtues are your strength. Because virtues complete you as a human being. Sin tries to erode you. So fill yourself with the righteousness of God. Fill yourself with justice, with love. And remember, now you know something that you probably never realized. The virtues are an entire class of angel. And they are very powerful. Fifth rank. So what St. Paul is saying here is not just put on righteousness of your own, not just the righteousness of God, not just the hope of those, but the angel of charity, the angel of truth, the angel of peace. You understand? In my prayers, I don't just ask my guardian angel for help. I ask the virtues. Calling the big guns, the heavy bombers, right? And those virtues... They're like, finally, somebody would like us to help. I will draw this person to charity. And then you'd be like, does this mean I'm going to be motivated, like wanting to do more charitable things, probably? (laughs) Realize that's the effect. Not bad, though, right? That's a powerful ally against this enemy. So we have extraordinary strength. Do not get freaked out. Stand your ground. All right, a few minutes left. Let's talk about exorcism just a bit. All right. So sometimes, yes, demons can possess people. This is exceptionally rare, and now the church has realized that a lot of cases of what seems to be demon possession at first blush is, in fact, mental illness, schizophrenia. So anytime you have really weird effect, you think, wow, is this person demon possessed? If you go to the priest, the first thing they're going to do is say, have you seen a psychiatrist? Because odds are, if you're hearing voices in your mind, you are not demon possessed, you're mentally ill. And if you're mentally ill, you want to try to get the right medicine. So you're a victim in that sense, and that's good. You do not want to be demon-possessed. Don't think, well, I would rather be, no, you would not rather be demon-possessed. All right? But there are instances when the, ex- the psychiatrist, extreme hostility to sacred things, like the Eucharist, speaking languages that the person doesn't know, like a child who suddenly can speak 4th century Latin. Very weird, right? Very weird. Um... Physical strength is completely outside the bounds of this person's normal strength level. And the, I mean, even in the Bible, the demons were able to, the demon-possessed man member could just break chains. Well, normal people can't break chains. That's unusual. And finally, uh, an elevated perception and knowledge of things they shouldn't have. Okay. Uh, any of those kinds of signs that the demon is somehow using its own strengths and powers over above the person. Then you, this priest is going to be like, okay, now we've got definitive signs, so then they call the church, and that's when the exorcist and the rite of exorcist, exorcism will occur. The rite of exorcism is real. It is not the way you see in the movies. It is a long process of the rite and the prayers. It's extremely tiresome and difficult. If you want to sort of see, the only Hollywood-type thing that has ever got this more or less right is the movie Possessed with Timothy Dalton he's the main actor and that's why I'm putting him on here because there might be other names that aren't the right one. And what's interesting in this case is the demon is obsessed with the priest and using the uh, victim of the possession as a lure to assault the priest. And a lot of times the exorcist will say the reason this is bait. Bring the kid, do the possession, bring in the priest and try to and priests do get shattered sometimes. So this is a quite a film. If you've never seen this, go find this. I mean, if you're interested. But if you're if you have a purient interest, like you're kind of taken with the idea of angelic powers and stuff, don't watch it. it have nothing to do with this stuff. Go read First Corinthians thirteen and love people. Okay, real fast on ghosts because I have four minutes left. Here's the thing about ghosts. Take a look at Luke twenty-four. direction. Jesus is out and about meeting up with people and surprising them because he's alive. And he shows up with the disciples. He says to them at Luke, at page 77, Luke 24, 36, peace be to you. Because of course they're freaked out and startled when he shows up. They thought they saw a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do you questionings rise in your heart? See my hands and my feet? It's I myself. Handle me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then he, I think, ate some fish and proved to them, see, ghosts don't eat fish. So people, even in Jesus' day, seem to understand that if somebody is alive after they're dead and they kind of have an apparitional-like appearance and they go through walls, then they're kind of a ghost. <laughs> okay. Now, what are ghosts? Well, and I'm going to just be, be very straight with you here. If you try to look up ghosts in the church documents, it's not a very hot topic. I have not been able to find any official teaching. So what I'm about to tell you now is not official. Not official. (laughs) Understand this, okay? This is based on my experience in teaching about the paranormal and these types of things. But I'm going to try to make it's going to fit with everything we've done. But here's the basic point. Ghosts seem to come into two kinds, non-interactive and interactive. The non-interactive ghosts are the ones that you find, for example, at battlefields. For example, if you go to Gettysburg, and you'll hear them talk. Everybody has a story about some weird ghostly phenomena. A cavalry regiment rides through, you hear cannonballs and musket fire, and you know there's no reenactors. There's always story after story after story. In other major battlefields throughout the world, there's something about historical events where horrific human suffering has occurred that it seems to almost like mark that space and bleed through. And I say they're not interactive because you'll be standing there And an entire regiment of cavalry will come running through. And you'll be like, and they just don't see you. So it's not like they're in your world. Do you understand? It's more like the past has bled through. And what you're seeing is a glimpse of what happened. That's the best way that I can explain this from the people that talk about this and deal with this sort of thing. Non-interactive. And that may be some sort of bleed through of suffering over time. Similar in like the concentration camps, horrific suffering of that seems to leave marks that function in non-interactive ghost ways. The other possibility is an interactive ghost. And of the interactive ghosts, there's two kinds. There's happy ghosts, and there's unhappy ghosts. The vast majority of ghosts are unhappy. But the happy ghosts, and there's only one class, and I call these the bereavement ghosts. And again, you might have had an experience or heard somebody talk about this. So uh, your Aunt Susie shows up at your door, and you're like, whoa, I didn't know you were coming tonight. Um, come on in. Let's have tea. She talks to you. You have a great time. Then she leaves, and you're like, okay, that was not expected. Ten minutes later, your mother calls and says, well, I've got some bad news. Oh, what happened? Well, this morning at 3 a.m., Aunt Susie died. You're like,
1: what? I just talked to Aunt Susie. She was just here.
0: Right? I just talked to Aunt Susie. Well, this is a very common phenomenon, it turns out, and it seems to be a kind of a reassuring thing of good, noble people, of charitable people. Uh, and that's why we tend to call them bereavement ghosts, happy ghosts, good situation, right? And so that may be what's happening in those kinds of cases. But the unhappy ghost is the one that we're familiar with. A ghost that has agency, it's aware of you, can react somehow to you, thus it seems like a personal experience, but seems ghostly, not physical, but it's physically manifested. And they, all of them, seem tortured, miserable, unhappy. And the question is, what in the world are these things? And the truth is, people aren't real sure. There's different interpretations. Some people think they're, they're demons masquerading as human spirits. <coughs> King Saul saw out a witch because he wanted to talk to Samuel because he thought God abandoned him the witch had a spirit that she worked with a demon and the demon would typically pretend to be the person that the person that you know you is trying to go to the medium to get to talk to your dead ancestor the demon would pretend to be that person so when king Saul went there samuel actually showed up the actual ghost of samuel and the witch was completely freaked out because she'd never actually experienced a real a genuine ghost before so that would suggest in that case that most ghosts are demonic manifestations that's one possibility Another possibility is that there's some kind of bleed over of the afterlife into our realm, possibly from hell, that people are attached to certain places and horrible things, right? The truth is we really don't know. But there are these kind of phenomena. They do happen. And so one of the things we do, like if you have weird things in your house, one of the things we do in the church is we have a time in, uh, it's sometime in the beginning of the church here after Christmas called um, a house blessing. And the priest will come to your house and he can bless it. And this is a way that if you're dealing with any of this weird nonsense, have the priest come in and do a blessing. In fact, it's a good idea if the priest has time. and if we have one priest for a lot of churches, but a blessing is a good a good idea. Um, so this is one thing. And then if it becomes pernicious or whatever, report that to the priest. And if it becomes more problematic, then of course, they can bring in the big guns. Yes? You know, it, any
1: sense of what kind of spiritual persons go saw? Because, you know, you talked about angelic persons and, you
0: know, demonic... Persons. Well, they're either... Here's the only possibilities. Angels don't mess with people. Right. So they're not angels. The good ones. Uh, they're not saints. The saints are very busy, okay. and rattling chains and scaring people is not what saints do. Okay. Uh, so that leaves the spirits of the damned okay. or the spirits in purgatory. Okay, My theory for a while was maybe they're at purgation. This is part of it. Elisa reminded me the other night that, Noel. If you're in purgatory, you can't sin. So going around scaring kids and being malicious to people in the house, assess it and figure that out. Okay. But, but the communion of saints doctrine, which we'll talk about later, is nothing to do with mediums and ghosts and talking to the dead and this kind of thing. It's a completely different thing, so don't mix those up. We don't go to mediums. We don't go to fortune tellers. This is not what Catholics do.